Good morning. Uh, welcome to Jubilee. If you're a visitor here this morning, uh, thanks again for coming. We've already welcomed you once. Uh, thanks for joining us. Lots of new faces I can see. Um, students, Alpha Course guests, um, baptism visitors. Uh, you are all very welcome this morning. You know what? We love inviting visitors and guests to encounter the wonder and love of Jesus. You know what? He really does change lives. We saw that in a, just a few people this morning. Um, and so this morning I'm going to be talking about an encounter with Jesus that changed a man's life forever. So if you've got a Bible, uh, you, you can start turning to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to be reading the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries, we'll be uh, putting uh, the, the passage up on the screen later. So as we read this, um, this part of um, Mark, we realize that Mark gives us the real Jesus. That's what this gospel account of Jesus is all about. The real Jesus, the controversial Jesus, not just a, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pretty Jesus. The real deal, the real deal, outrageous, shocking the people of his day, because that's what Jesus did. And you know what? If you're not a Christian here this morning, watch out as we read this passage. You might encounter the real and often uncomfortable Jesus. Are you up for that this morning? Let's read it, shall we? Um, so it's Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And I'm going to actually be reading from the Message Bible. This is a slightly different paraphrase translation. Um, After a few days, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and word got round that he, Jesus, was back home. The crowd gathered, jamming the entrance, so no one could get in or out. He was teaching the word. They brought a paraplegic to him, carried by four men. When they weren't able to get in because of the crowd, they removed part of the roof and lowered the paraplegic on his stretcher. Impressed by their bold belief, Jesus said to the paraplegic, Son, I forgive you. Some religious scholars sitting there started whispering, muttering among themselves, He can't talk that way. That's blasphemy. God and only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew right away what they were thinking and said, Why are you so skeptical? Which is simpler? To say to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or say, Get up, take your stretcher, and start walking. Well, just so it's clear that I'm the Son of Man, God himself, an authorized uh, to, and authorized to do either both, either or both, he looked now at the paraplegic and said, Get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And the man did it. Got up, grabbed his stretcher and walked out with everyone watching him. They rubbed their eyes, incredulous, amazed, and then praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's pray, shall we? Yes, Lord, I thank you uh, for this true account, this historical account 
of you, Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you came and showed us how to be. I thank you that you came and showed us what God looked like. I thank you that you showed us um, that you are an amazing, amazing God. And I pray as we, op- as we um, open this scripture up, as we open this passage up in more detail, I pray that each person here sees more of the wonder, loveliness, beauty, and power of who you really are. Thank you, Jesus. Pour out your spirit. Amen. So, it couldn't get more dramatic, could it? News has spread like wildfire fire that Jesus is back in town. People flocked from all over. And so, here in the midst of one of Jesus' gatherings, in someone's home probably, suddenly, while Jesus is talking, bits of dust and reeds start falling from the ceiling. And then suddenly, chunks... Chunks of first century plaster start dropping from above. Everyone stops. Everyone looks up. And to their surprise, they see four pairs of hands rooting around, making a hole in the roof bigger and bigger, wider and wider. What on earth is going on? And then suddenly, a paraplegic man, a paralytic man, he can't walk, is lowered by ropes through the roof and drops at Jesus' feet, center stage. Wow. Imagine if that was to happen now. We've got Jesus' attention. And then then what we've just read is a conversation Um, between Jesus, the paraplegic man, the man who can't walk, and others in the room. And what I think really stands out here, as I've just said, is how shocked people are by Jesus. We've never seen anything like this. And so this morning, I have three points, three things that shocked Jesus in onlookers, three things that might probably shock you. So firstly... How were they shocked? Well, they were shocked by Jesus' forgiveness. Let's go back. The roof falls in, hasn't it? The man comes down, and there Jesus is presented, if you like, um, with a man on a mat, clearly unable to walk, clearly thinking this could be the day of his life. Ta-da! Here I am, Jesus. Wave your magic wand. And then silence. Everybody waits and watches to see what Jesus is going to do next. And Jesus, very, very surprisingly, says, Son, I forgive your sins. Son, I forgive your sins. What? What did he just say? Has Jesus forgotten to put his contact lenses in or something? Everyone seems to know what this man has come from. Jesus, what planet are you on? That's what everyone will have been thinking. Is that what you're thinking? Why has he said that? This man might have been thinking, gee, thanks, Jesus. That's really kind of you to forgive me and everything. But I've just made that. I've just made the entry of my life here. Roof, roof crashing isn't my usual 
mode of entry. I am aware of the invention called the door. This is serious. I'm paralyzed. I've got a more immediate problem here. Don't you see? I can't walk. Son, forgive your sins. What's that all about? Now that's how the paraplegic man could have responded. That's how I might have responded. You see, this man, you see, for this man, his disability will have been his all and everything. His whole life will have been lived on a mat three feet wide, six feet long. Someone will have had to feed him, carry him, clothe him, move him, clean him every day. He'll have probably been a beggar, no money, no job, no influence, no future. And so now he's here before Jesus, thinking, asking, give me the desperate desire of my heart, the thing that will make it all okay. Make me walk again, Jesus, and all my troubles will be over. Make me walk again, and I'll be the happiest man alive. I'll never complain again. I'll never be unhappy again. Come on, Jesus, heal me. You see, that's how a lot of us approach Jesus, don't we? But do you know what? Jesus sees deeper, much deeper. You see, Jesus sees the bigger problem in this, li- uh, in this man's life, much bigger than his physical condition. And he hits it first, and it offends us, it shocks us. Jesus is saying, yes, I understand your problem, son. I really do. I've seen your suffering. I've seen the rejection. I see your need of healing. I see that you're in need of healing, radical healing, actually. And do you know what? I'll get to that in a minute. But let me help you realize this. The main problem in your life is not your suffering. It's your sin. Wow. You see, this man's hope, his hope lay in the fact that if Jesus healed him, it would be paradise. If Jesus healed him, everything would be okay. He'd never be happy again. He'd never be unhappy again. But we all know, we all know that life just doesn't work like that, does it? Give him two months. Give him four months after he's gotten over the excitement of being able to walk again he'll realize the excitement just doesn't last. The excitement never lasts. Because happiness is actually a very confusing thing, really. Have you ever thought about it? This is Charlie Brown. Let me, um, let me put it in a different way. Let me give you another example. When you're young, I was young once, when you're young... And the world, there's quite a few young people heavily weighted on that side of the room. Um, when you're young, the world, see, and the world seems to be your oyster. You know what? You start off life thinking happiness is normal. Happiness is very natural. We should all be happy. In fact, you really, really believe the only reason why people aren't happy because they've messed up. That's how you think life That's how you think early on in life, don't you? I did. Is that you this morning? Is that what you think? All you students out there particularly, 
But then, as time moves on, as life kicks in, as the wrinkles become a bit more evident, we become burdened with the increasing responsibilities of work, marriage, uh, looking after the kids, handling finances, pressure, stress. We move from, we move from watching uh, uh, stuff like happy stuff like Peppa Pig to watching more serious stuff like Panorama and the news at 10, we start realizing that happiness is actually not all that it's cut out to be. We desperately yearn to be happy because we find it so difficult to be fundamentally, deeply, consistently happy. You suddenly realize that actually you are wrong about happiness all the time. Unhappy people aren't just the ones who've messed up because you're unhappy. Yeah? Do you hear what I'm saying? You know what? If you really don't, just give it time. You will. As we live life, happiness is the thing we strive for the most and never seem to quite get there. Prince Charles um, once said, there remains deep in the soul, I dare, if I dare use that word, a persistent and unconscious anxiety that something is missing, some ingredient that makes life worth living. The roots of the discontentment of the human heart go deep. It's very true, isn't it? The journalist um, Cynthia Heimel, she's a New York journalist, and she once wrote about her experience of some celebrities that she got to know through her time in New York. And she noted that before they came famous, before they came famous, how hard they worked striving for fame and stardom. However, finally, when they became famous, when they got their success, when they got their stardom, when they got what they were looking for, it was actually very, very different. Every one of them, she says, became more manic, more angry, more unhappy, and more unstable. This is what she says. She says this, I pity celebrities... No, I really do. She's not being sarcastic. She's being genuine. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. The celebrities that I know were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. And the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. That's a very insightful thing to say. And so when Jesus says to the paraplegic man, Son... I forgive your sins, he's saying, yeah, I see what you're going through, I really do, but you have underestimated the depths of your longings. He's saying, by just asking me to heal your body, by just asking me just to heal your body, you are not going deep enough. He's saying, if you want real happiness, if you want real joy, you need much, much more than that. You need to change the very thing your heart must once. I'm going to say that again. You need to change the very thing your heart must once. 
And that is what Jesus, what the Bible calls sin. Sin. Putting other things before God. Things that never truly, consistently satisfy in the long term. Now, for some of you, that might be a very unusual way of thinking about sin. You see, when you read the Bible, the Bible says sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity and security and worth in your relationship and service to God. We're all doing it. We all worship something or someone other than God. Our careers may be money, children, family, what people think about us, romance maybe, success maybe, often good things actually. But the Bible says sin is seeking to get our identity and value from these other things above and beyond God. And that just doesn't make sense. Jesus said in uh, Mark 7 later on in this um, gospel, it's what comes out of a person that pollutes him. Obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolish. That pretty much includes everybody here, probably. All of these, Jesus says, is vomit from the heart. A heart that is in rebellion towards God. Sin. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Sin is the great wall, the great partition that gets between us and God. The huge barrier that destroys our relationship with him. The relationship that we were created for. Sin is the chasm that separates us from all the riches of life with God. You see, that's real joy beyond your wildest dreams. Even in the midst of suffering and hardship, actually. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia books, uh, wrote this, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. And he goes on to say this, very insightfully really, he says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us in God like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. Are you far too easily pleased? Cynthia Heimel goes on to say, the journalist who I talked about earlier, showed you you a quote earlier, she goes on to say something when I first read really took my breath away. And she said this, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish, then laughs merrily when you realize that you want to kill yourself. Jesus says to this man, I am not, I am not going to play that rotten trick on you. I am not just going to grant your deepest wish. I want to heal your soul deep down. I want you to have joy in me everlasting. Son, daughter, I forgive your sins. Did you hear that? Do you need to hear that? Do you, got, do you get what Jesus says is really wrong with you and me, with humanity? Or is our pride getting in the way? Where are you searching for happiness? Is it working? Will it last? Are you sure? 
So they were shocked by Jesus' forgiveness. Secondly, they were shocked by who Jesus said he was. Did you notice how the religious bods reacted? You might have reacted the same way too if you were there. This is, what they say, this, is what it, this is what they say. Some religion scholars sitting there started whispering among themselves. He can't talk that way. That's blasphemy. God and only God can forgive sins. And you know what? They were right, of course. Jesus was making a huge claim. By forgiving this man's sins, he was essentially saying that all sin was against me, him. And you can't. And you can only forgive the sins that are against you. And if you really think about it, it's only your creator who can say that. It's only, cons- it's only your creator who can forgive all the sins that a, that a person does. Jesus very clearly was claiming to be God. And everyone knew it. Outrageous, really. And this isn't the only place in the Bible either. That, um, that Jesus says, this, says things like this. He says, I am the way, not just one of many ways. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. Shocking. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, for I have come down from heaven. <coughs> Jesus categorically, unashamedly, unambiguously, shockingly is saying he is God. Not just a good man, not just a wise teacher, not just someone who's pointing the way to God like say Muhammad or Buddha or other prophets would. No way. He's saying clearly that he is God. How does that make you feel? Don't like Jesus now, do you? It would be completely understandable if you, at first, after hearing Jesus' claims, thought he was a lying lunatic, a crazy guy. That would be an appropriate, reasonable response. It would. But hold on, not so fast. Because there's a real big problem with that kind of thinking, and it's this. When you look at Jesus, look at the quality of his life. Look at the quality of his teaching. Was that really the life of a fraudster, a loser, a liar, a crazy guy? Of course it's not. Jesus' compassion and love for justice, the poor, the outcasts, his grace, his mercy, his tender-heartedness, his radical teaching, his radical thinking was awe-inspiring. Unlike anyone else, Jesus is probably the most influential guy to have rocked into world history. That is an uncontroversial statement. Look deeper. Look at his life. It wasn't the life of a crazy guy. You've seen crazy guys. You might live next to one. You might be sitting next to one. No, no, I don't think you are. Jesus. Jesus wasn't a crazy guy. Look deeper. Someone put it this way. No one has ever discovered the words Jesus ought to have said or the deeds He ought to have done nothing he does falls short. In fact, he is always surprising you, always taking your breath away because he's better than you could imagine. I love that quote. You'll have heard that quote before. Why? Because it's true. Do you see it? Do you see at least something 
of what the people in Jesus' time saw. The very reason why thousands of people in Jesus' time got down and worshipped him overnight. That's not how history usually plays out. Things usually take a long time, lots of time. Why, not, why was that not so with Christianity? Because as they looked at Jesus, they felt, they knew, they saw that they were looking through the substance of human flesh at the very being of God. Do you get it? Who do you say Jesus is? Have you really thought enough about it? Why don't you come on our next Alpha course in the new year? An opportunity to explore in depth who this wonderful God-man is. So they were shocked by his forgiveness, what the soul deeply needs. They were shocked also by who he was, God himself. And finally, to end, they were shocked by the cross. Now, some of you will be saying, but he doesn't even mention the cross in this passage. Wake up. Look closer. One of the great questions of all time is here in this passage. Did you know that? In fact, one of the Bible scholars that I read uh, that's looked into this in loads of detail says that millions of words have been written about this question over the last 20 centuries. And you know what? Still we don't know the answer. What's the question? Well, it's in verse 9. And it says this. Which is simpler, to say to, to say to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or say to the paraplegic, get up, take your stretcher, and start walking? Which one is it? To say, I forgive your, to say, I forgive your sins, or to say, get up and walk? Hands up. Who thinks it's to say, I forgive your sins? Who says it's to get up and walk? How many people don't know? <laughs> You're in good company. You see, when you read this, it seems, it, well, to me, it seems very obvious. Of course, it's much easier to say, hey, dude, I forgive you, than to say, get up and walk. Easy peasy. Not a difficult question. But you know what? It's not as simple as that. Have a look. When Jesus uses the verb say here, the Greek word is much more than just to say. It doesn't mean just to utter um, words. It means to utter words that actually make something happen. That's what the Greek word means. Words that have an, a certain effect. When Jesus says get up and walk, his very words make it happen. That's what the Greek here is getting at. Awesome, actually. I thought so. So what? How does that help us answer the question? Well, this is it. When Jesus says, I forgive your sins, he's saying, it's one thing for me to heal you, but it will be very different. Much, much harder, infinitely harder for me to affect the forgiveness of your sins. Why? Because that involves the enormity of the cross. Have you read some of the stories of the Christian martyrs over the years? Amazing, really. Their courage in the face of death was startling. When Hugh Latimer 
Some of you impact guys will have heard this when uh, Charlotte did something with you guys about suffering. When Hugh Latimer and uh, Nicholas Ridley, two famous Christian martyrs, were burnt at the stake in 1505, it's recorded that Latimer said very calmly to his fellow, fellow martyr Ridley, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That's what he said calmly before being burnt alive. Wow. What about the Maccabean martyrs? They suffered horrible deaths for refusing to worship Greek gods. Some of these guys would shout out defiantly and confidently about God even as their legs were being chopped off. Staggering courage. Mind-blowing bravery. But get this. Have you ever noticed Jesus didn't die this way? Jesus suffered very differently to some of the well-known martyrs that we read about. He didn't do it with a British stiff upper lip. He wasn't like Latimer and Ridley and the Maccabean martyrs. He wasn't. When we read the Gospels, Jesus was overcome with torment, literally shaken by what was ahead of him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he died, we are told that he began to be very distressed and troubled. Jesus said, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. He sweat blood. In fact, we hear the heart-wrenching truth about what Jesus thought about his death in Luke 22. He says this, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Get me out of this. I can't bear it. Take the cup away that you're calling me to drink. And even on the cross, Jesus shouts out in a loud voice, one of the most famous and painful cries of sorrow ever heard. Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' cry, Spurgeon tells us, distills the concentrated anguish of the world. When Jesus asks, which is simpler, to heal someone's physical disability or heal, to heal the very scar on all humanity's sin, he's looking at the reality of the cross for him. He's beginning to confront, as never before, the ultimate, the deepest agony of Calgary, an agony that actually goes infinitely beyond any physical aspects of his suffering, like some of the martyrs had to go to, something very different to what any human has ever gone through or will ever have to go through. When Jesus pleads to his Father, remove this cup from me, that is what is causing him so much pain and grief. So what's in the cup? I'll tell you what's in the cup. C.J. Mahaney writes this, this cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin throughout time. Because God cannot ignore sin like we do. Sin demands a serious response. 
Actually, if God did ignore it like we do, he wouldn't be worth worshipping, would he? God is just and righteous. This cup is your cup and mine. Now do you see why the question is such a hard one to answer? As Jesus stares into the cup, he sees what hell is like. Total God-forsakenness, total abandonment, total rejection, so that we can go free. Do you see it now? That's why it will be much, much harder to say, Son, I forgive your sins, than get up and walk. You see, on the cross, Jesus shows his absolute love and commitment to us through his suffering. Jesus pays the penalty that you and I deserved for all of our sins so that we can live the life we were created for in intimacy, in closeness to him, with all the riches and blessings of a lavish, generous God, with all the hope and certainty that God assures, um, assures us forever in him. It cost us absolutely nothing. It cost him absolutely everything. Do you want to know how much Jesus loves you? Do you really want to know how much Jesus loves you? That's how much he loves you. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God, Jesus, loved the world that he gave, so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I want to end with a question, really. Why would you not want this love? Why would you not want Jesus? Has, why would you not want what Jesus has for you? Will you keep striving for the deepest, desperate longings of your heart? Or will you let Jesus change the very thing that your heart most wants, most needs, him? Will you let Jesus drive you deep this morning? If the band comes up, that would be great. Um, we're going to sing a song now. We're also going to take our collection uh, during this last song, this time of worship. So if you're not a visitor here, if you're a visitor here this morning, we don't want your money. Just pass the bucket along. Um, this is for regular givers to Jubilee Church and everything we do. Why don't you stand? If you want to become a Christian here this morning, you can. God, Jesus himself, is ushering you sending you, giving you an invitation this morning so that you can have a life with him in all intimacy, in all closeness. You know what? You know what? You can have joy everlasting regardless of what life is hitting you with. No more guilt, no more con condemnation. Some of you on the Alpha Course have already made that commitment. Some of you might not have. There may be guests here who've never heard this story before. I want to invite you, I want to invite you to trust this Jesus who died for you. Do you know what? When this man came to Jesus, he didn't ask him for anything. He certainly didn't ask him for a relationship, a loving relationship. But you know what? Jesus saw something in him, a thread of faith. And do you know what? That's all it takes to begin with. If you're really not sure, or if you're just wondering... If you're on the edge, can I encourage you?
to ask someone to pray for you this morning and let Jesus into your life. Alternatively, um, Dennis is going to be standing over, over, over just on this side. Angela is going to be standing uh, on this side. Stuart, uh, Stuart's going to come and stand over on this side. And if you want to become a Christian this morning, if you want to explore that further, they'd be happy to talk to you, to pray for you. Nothing weird. Just to pray for you so that Jesus can come into your life. Let's worship. Let's stand. And if there's, any, if there's anybody here that wants to do that this morning, come over to that side of the room or ask the friend that's brought you. And God will rush into your life. Thanks for listening. Our hands return.